Good morning. All right, it's good to be here. I'm so thankful for Brandon last week bringing God's word for us to hear and, uh, and grow from. Uh, I'd also appreciate uh, those little, uh, those little jabs he gave me right at the beginning. Uh, there will be some coming your way, Brandon, wherever you are. Maybe not in this message, but soon, when you least expect it. Uh, Brandon talked a little bit about being a, a youth pastor, youth ministry, and brought kind of a youth ministry vibe, and uh, I'm going to uh, follow that lead and uh, start us off with a little youth ministry uh, sort of game. Uh, we're calling it Sharper Image. We're going to put an image up here on the screen, and then we're going to ask you, what that is an image of? This is question number one. Anyone have any idea what this is? A bunny. Survey says? You are right. Oh, that is so cute. So it's, it's, it tis the season, right? All right. That was a practice. Let's do number two. This is a little bit harder. What is that? All right. I lied. That wasn't harder. A donut. That's a perfect donut. That is just perfectly proportioned. It looks great. Uh, number three. Let's see if you can get this one. What? Who said that? My wife? Now, you didn't know what this was beforehand, did you? I didn't show this to you? You can tell that's seashells. Wow, I thought that one would be hard. Okay. All right. Wow. Uh, okay, let's do one more and see what we got. What is that? Are you serious? Boy, you guys are good. Oh, how we miss it. Uh, it's coming back soon, I hear. Um, and it's only four times the price per day, right? <laughs> the new normal. Who in here needs glasses? Anybody? I'm one of them. When I am wearing my glasses, I am wearing plus four lenses. Those things are thick. They make my eyes look enormous. In fact, when I was in junior high, I had all these girls come up to me, you have such big, beautiful eyes. I was like, no, I don't. They're, they're tiny. <laughs> I need glasses. I need glasses to see clearly. We all need them, right, to get through life um, and, and just avoid uh, the twists and turns that there are in life, avoid getting hit by cars and falling down those elevator shafts. I mean, that is a real danger, isn't it? It's important to be able to see clearly. We pay big money to see clearly. We pay big money for, for better television sets. They have higher resolution or, or, or better screened devices so that we can see more clearly. The title of Brandon's message last week was Clear the Sand from your eyes. And I think that's really appropriate because here in Mark chapter 8 and in chapter 9, Jesus kind of plays the role of an optometrist and he brings things into sharper focus for us. Up until now, people had understood Jesus to be a great teacher, someone really special. He's a great teacher, he was a healer. They were beginning to see him as a provider. Last week, things got dialed in even more as Peter announced, you are the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one. That meant he was the king. 
And this, we said, was the critical moment in the book of Mar in Mark's gospel. It's the most important thing to understand about Jesus. He is the Christ. Yes, that's it. Finally, Peter, you get it. Now, you'd think that would be the way that Jesus responded. But he didn't respond that way. What did he say? Don't tell anyone. That's curious. Why would he say that? Well, several weeks ago, we said that Jesus was telling people not to tell anybody else, sometimes about the miracles that he had done, because he wanted to make sure that he had enough time to invest in his disciples before marching into the, the events that would lead to his, his leaving this earth. He wanted to prepare them for the work that they were going to continue after he had left. And if word got out uh, and the, t the tension came to a boiling point with religious leaders, political leaders, then that may have ushered in those end events sooner than he desired. But here, with Peter's confession, the confession, you are the Christ, I think there's something, there's another aspect. There's something a little bit more going on here. Could it be that the reason Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone was because they, the disciples, along with everyone else, did not yet understand what the Christ was actually going to be. Could it be that even though Peter had identified him correctly, that he really didn't understand what that meant for Jesus to be the Messiah? Yes, it, it could be. In fact, it be, because even up to the very last minute, we see Peter believed that Jesus' reign would need to be secured and defended just like that of any other king thus far in the history of humanity, by force. When soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden, what is the first thing Peter does? He grabs that sword. And here we realize he's, he's, he's really out of his realm, right? Because the death blow that he intended just nicks the soldier's ear. And Peter didn't understand. No one seemed to understand that Jesus was a king unlike any other king that it had, ever, had ever lived. Jesus would point this out in chapter 10. He pointed out when he told them, you know, the Gentiles are those kind of kings. They're those kind of kings. They, they grab up power, and then they lord that power over everyone they can. But that's not the way that Jesus' kingdom worked. He says in Mark 10, 43, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what they needed to come to understand. That's what they wouldn't fully understand until he had actually completed his mission. And that's why he tells them to keep his Messiahship quiet for the moment. Jesus was about to dial things into focus a little bit more. I wonder, could it be 
that there are things in our lives that have yet to be dialed into crystal clear focus? Could it be that our understanding of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or, or why we go to church, or what our lives are all about, or, or what, why we get married, or what it means to, to actually parent children, or what success looks like, or possibly even the reason for suffering and loss, they're still lacking a level of clarity, maybe even focus, that Jesus and his word have yet to bring. It doesn't take long for us to tell ourselves that we've come a long way, does it? I mean, my three-year-old is already convinced that she's got life pretty much figured out. <laughs> Maybe you've been a Christian for years and years. Maybe you've got the degrees hanging on your wall. Or maybe they're not on the wall. Maybe it's the degrees uh, from uh, the, the school of hard knocks. Your life bears those marks. Yeah, you've come a long way. I mean, these disciples, they had been walking and talking and eating and working with Jesus now for quite a while. They'd come a long way. They must have felt pretty in the know. In fact, they were probably feeling pretty good about their decision to follow Jesus to begin with. Leave all my livelihood behind? Okay. Leave all my hopes and dreams behind? I can do that. Jesus, this Jesus is doing amazing things here, hitching our wagon to his star. Wow, that was really a good move because he's going to take us straight to the top. This is going to be amazing. It's going to pay off. Just you wait any day now. He's going to storm the castle walls. He's going to take the throne, and we'll be right there with him. They still had a lot to learn, didn't they? Perhaps you and I have something to learn as well. Let's watch how Jesus brings things into sharper focus here in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. We see here that the path that Jesus had ahead of him, that was no accident, was it? No accident would come as no surprise to him. He knew exactly why he was there. He knew precisely what lay before him. This was going to be a painful journey. This was going to be a way of suffering and death. Verse 32 begins by saying, He spoke this plainly to him. He spoke what we just read plainly to him. This wasn't the first time that Jesus spoke about what was coming. In Matthew 12, 40, he said, For just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. In John 2, 19, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. On our side of the cross, that looks plain as day, doesn't it? It's very, very clear. But for those hearing this for the very first time, it would have been just a little fuzzy. Yes, they should have had the words of Isaiah 53 just jumping up and down in their minds when they heard Jesus talk like this. In fact, there's no shortage of passages in the Old Testament that make it clear that the Messiah was going to suffer. And yet, probably years and years of misinterpretation left the Jews wholly unprepared to anticipate this type of Savior. 
And that's why when Peter heard Jesus speaking this way, he immediately rebukes him. Jesus, I I know that you've had more than your fair share of resistance from the religious leaders, but things aren't that bad. There's no cause for talk of dying. Jesus, may it never be. What's more, Jesus, you better not die. You better not die because we put all of our eggs in your basket, Jesus. Don't you understand that? We've risked everything to follow you. You better not die and leave us hanging, Jesus. And you and I might be tempted to look at Peter and say, come on, man. How could you be so short-sighted, Peter? How could you be so selfish? How could you think that Jesus' mission was to make your life better, meet every one of your needs, give you a prominent seat when he takes the throne? Is that really what you think? But I think if you and I are honest with ourselves, we've got to admit that there have been times where we've just thrown our arms up to heaven and looked up to the sky and said, God, why? What's the deal? How on earth could you allow these things to be happening in my life? Lord, I gave my life to you. I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. What gives? Is this the way you treat your children? Is this what I signed up for? This is the way you treat your people. What's with this pandemic? I mean, why can't it be like back in Egypt where you know, the, 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 everything went dark for the Egyptians, but on your people, the sun still shone? Why can't I seem to find the right job? Why do, I, why do I look this way? Why do I feel this way? Why can't I seem to attract the right person or achieve my goals or, or maybe have children? Or have enough money? Why am I dealing with this disability or these health problems? Why am am I experiencing this terrible loss? Why does my child have all these problems? Why why does it seem like everyone else gets all the breaks, but I'm just here under the table trying to grab up the little scraps? And that's when I think if we listen carefully, we hear him say to us through his word that his plans are far bigger than our own. Thank God they are far bigger than our own. They're far bigger, far better. We've got our sights set on momentary pleasure, don't we? On temporary success, on fleeting comforts. And all the while, he's working out his plan for our eternal good. Yes, we know that for, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God's plan is ultimately a plan for our good. But that plan requires momentary suffering in exchange for lasting joy. And that's especially true when it comes to the cross of Jesus, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross. Peter would come to see that later on. In fact, when Jesus completed his mission, less than a year's time, Peter himself was going to stand up at Pentecost and proclaim to thousands of people that Jesus' death and resurrection was exactly what God had ordered. This is really great news. This is the best news ever. But not now. Not here. Not in Mark 8. No, Jesus' talk of dying was the last thing Peter wanted to hear. No way, Jesus. May it never be. 
And that's when Jesus responds with a whip-cracking rebuke. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Have you ever been put in your place? I have, but not in this way. Not to this extreme. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to have been put in your place this way by Jesus in front of all your peers to be referred to as Satan? Now, of course, Peter was not Satan. And yet, right there in that moment, Peter was talking Satan's talk. His words were in direct opposition to God's great plan. They echoed the propositions that had been made to Jesus in that wilderness by the tempter. Do you remember? There's another way, Jesus. You don't have to die. You don't have to lay down your life. You can just do what every other human leader has ever done, self-promote. Put others down, push them out, win the affections of the crowd, strike strategic blows at your enemies, bow down to me. You can have it all. There's another way. And Jesus said to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How many times have you and I been tempted to abandon God's methods in exchange for our methods? Or the methods of other people. God's way says, walk by faith. And the way of humanity says, believe in yourself. God's way says, be honest, be diligent, work hard, be patient, treat others as you would be treated. The way of this fallen world says, do whatever it takes or let others do it for you. The end justifies means. God's way says, your true value is found in the one who made you. Our way says, it's just you. It's only you. It's all about you. God's way says, your maker calls the shots. He establishes your identity. He has the last word on who you are and how you should live your life. And my way says, I can do whatever I want. I could be whoever I want. And I'm not going to let anyone else tell me otherwise. I know what's best for me. God's way says, suffering and self-sacrifice are the highest forms of love. And man's way says, love is about personal satisfaction. Love Love as long as you feel like loving. But make sure you avoid pain and discomfort, most of all, boredom. For Jesus, God's way, which was actually his way, was that the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world, would find victory, not by standing up for himself, not by demanding his rights and exerting his authority, but by exercising his authority, demonstrating his superior power and love and resolve. How? By laying down his life for others. If you place your trust in Jesus, you love that he did that. 
Easter is a time to celebrate what he did on the cross and his victorious return from the grave. But I have to ask myself this, am I willing to walk in his footsteps? Are you more than happy to benefit from the sacrifice that he made for you as long as it doesn't interrupt or impact your pursuits of personal pleasure? Well, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Jesus had brought into clearer focus what it meant for him to be the Messiah, but now he's going to bring into ultra HD clarity what it meant to be his disciple. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. The, the disciples, they had already walked away from quite a bit, hadn't they? They had left their boats, they left their nets, they left their, left their tax booths, they left their righteous cause against their pagan oppressors. What more did they have to give up? That word that is translated in our translation, deny, that's an important word for us. It means to completely disown everything. Everything must be given up to follow Jesus. And someone might say, wait a second, what are you saying? I thought that salvation was the free gift of God to anyone who believes. I thought that it was not by works of righteousness now you're telling me that I have to do something to give up everything? What gives? What kind of bait-and-switch operation is this? Well, you see, to put your faith in Jesus intrinsically means that you must abandon faith in everything else. You have to abandon it. To say yes to Jesus, you necessarily have to say no to other things. It's kind of like getting married, isn't it? When you stand on the altar and you say I do to that special guy, that special girl, at the same time, you're saying no to everyone else, aren't you? Yes, you will be my first, my one, my only love as long as we both shall live. That means that you are saying no. You cannot be my first, my one, my only love to everyone else. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to the idea that I can be good enough to get to God on my own. How could I? By trusting in Jesus as the only one who can make me right with God, I am at the same time admitting that every other way is just a waste of time. And not only is it a waste of time, it's going to leave me naked and exposed to the full force of God's wrath on Judgment Day. Jesus is the only way. If I say yes to him, I'm saying no to every other way, I'm not doing this on my own. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to all of the sinful things that I used to indulge in. And that's because to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins is to inherently recognize that my sins any word, thought, or deed that's not in line with God's will, that those were the problem in the first place. I turned to Jesus to escape the horrible consequence of my sins. How on earth can I continue to live in them? Romans 6. To say yes to Jesus 
is to say no to the pursuit of building up my kingdom and my personal paradise here on earth. This is a tough one for me. Trying to build my own heaven in the here and now and not to live all out for the true eternal paradise that Jesus Christ came to purchase my reservation for, that's to be totally short-sighted. Not only short-sighted, it's to be disobedient, because Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And in fact, it exposes my weak belief in the promises that he made. You see, to say yes to Jesus, when I do that, I'm truly saying no to my old life that I had apart from him. Saying yes means saying Jesus is my life. Everything that I was before is a waste. Everything that I am, everything that I believe, everything that I do now in him has true significance, true lasting value, eternal rewards. Deny yourself? You bet. Sign me up. What you have to offer Jesus is far, far better than anything I was or was after before you. And that was the Apostle Paul's attitude, wasn't it? Philippians 3, whatever I had gained, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, the sharper image of discipleship, it means denial. Abandoning yourself to fully embrace Jesus. It also means something else. It means taking up your cross, doesn't it? Deny yourself, take up your cross. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up their cross. Now, that doesn't mean go to the jewelry store. It doesn't mean to get that, that nice little neck. It's the biggest, fattest, shiniest cross you can. And I can remember back in college at, at Azusa Pacific, there were these uh, the, theology profs that had, that had these crosses, and they were part of the Big Daddy Cross Club. That didn't make you more holy. It doesn't mean put the fish sticker on the back of your car. It doesn't mean go out to the store and buy that Christian T-shirt. Nor does it mean try to paint your own like I did as a nerd in high school and then tried to wear it at school. In the ancient world, the cross was crucifixion. It was execution. It meant death. People who hung on crosses, they were the cursed enemies of society. In fact, to align yourself with Christ means to misalign yourself with the rest of the world, doesn't it? If the world has been opposed to God since men and women first walked away in Genesis 3 and Jesus came to realign people back with God, then anyone who lines up with God now is going to be out of alignment with the world. That was confusing, right? Jesus said it a lot better in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Whoever thought that following Jesus was the road to health, wealth, and happiness was sadly mistaken. Those who turn to Jesus see that knowing him and the hope that they have in heaven, they see that to be so exceedingly superior that any sacrifice or hardship or discomfort or unpopularity or opposition that they experience in this life is That's what Paul saw. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The ultra HD image of discipleship reveals that it is about self-denial, embracing a life of discomfort and even persecution. One other thing, loyal obedience. Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you ever played follow the leader, maybe you played Simon Says as a child, you know that the name of the game is to look and listen carefully so that you can do just what the leader does. And the same thing needs to happen here. It means attentively watching. It means carefully listening. Not so that we can just amass a bunch of knowledge and and appear more intelligent or more spiritual than the next guy, but so that you might follow his lead, walk in his footsteps, obey in everything. Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. A sharper image of discipleship. It reveals that it involves denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following. That's loyal obedience. Yeah, salvation is a free gift, but those who have been saved and are being transformed by God's word and his Holy Spirit, they display evidence of these things in their lives. It's not the root, it's the fruit. You've heard that before. Is there evidence of these things in our lives? Or have we, over the course of our extended time on this earth, begun to have our eyes of faith glaze over and begin to think that being Christ's disciple is more about experiencing the good life now my best life 
now. Jesus went on to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is heavy stuff. What happened to the, the lighthearted, easygoing, let's make everyone feel comfortable and happy Jesus? What happened to him? What happened to the just love each other and, and come and get your problems solved and get your bellies full, Jesus? Where'd he go? Well, maybe that wasn't the point of Jesus' miracles to begin with. Maybe all those miracles were just a foretaste of what was coming in the next life. Maybe the path to lasting joy, the return to paradise lost, is, one of the, is, is a path of momentary discomfort and suffering. Is that what you're trying to tell us, Jesus? I'm starting to get it. You're speaking more plainly now than you were before. If, is that what you're talking about? Because Jesus, if that's the case, I'm not sure, so sure I want to follow you anymore. How do I know that you really are who you say you are? How do I know that you're going to come through on the promises that you've made to me? Now that the cost of following you is going up, Jesus, I, I don't, I don't, I'm having second thoughts. I, I, I might be out. I think that's why Jesus says what he says next. He gives us a sharper image of what it means for him to be the, the Messiah, what it looks like to be, for us to be his disciples. Now he's going to give his disciples a brilliant view of how a suffering servant that he's, he's pictured here for them can be a suffering servant at the same time be the Lord of glory. Mark 9, 1 he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what a few of them, a handful of them are going to experience in less than a week's time. Verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there, appear, and, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. What just happened here. Dazzling, blazing, 
super intense glory. Jesus takes the veil off and reveals himself, his radiant glory to these three disciples. I mean, this is jaw-dropping. This is blow your hat off and your hair back, cause your heart to stop and your knees to buckle kind of stuff. This is brain-busting, fear-inducing, speech-confounding kind of stuff. If his appearance wasn't enough, Moses and Elijah are there, two of the most significant people in Israel's history, and they are validating, confirming, verifying that this Jesus, the one who just told you what Messiahship looks like for him, he is exactly who God put here for his purposes. He may not have been what you expected, but he's most definitely God's anointed one. James and John, uh, James and John they couldn't speak. Peter, probably one of those guys who just couldn't keep his mouth shut, he just starts blurting out nonsense. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make some tents. What? In an instant, these, these three men became terrifyingly aware that they were in the presence of the maker himself. All at once, the rejection, the suffering, the death that he spoke of, as well as the difficult road he said his disciples would walk, those were understood to have nothing to do with a lack of power or an inability to defy the powers of evil. On the contrary, this is all part of the Creator's glorious plan. Suffering would not mean weakness. An insult would not mean insignificance. Death would not mean failure. This is the Lord of glory. This is the sovereign and supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. And to follow in his footsteps and to share in his sufferings would now be seen as the highest badge of honor. Is that the way you see Jesus? Is that the way you see your calling and your journey through life? What about now as the temperature starts to get turned up on us and the insults fly, the regulations increase, the freedoms seem like they're getting fuzzy and fading away? I'm astonished that some Christians think to, seem to think that they need to stand up and defend Jesus' honor in a fundamentally, in fundamentally unchristlike ways. We grab swords, we bust out our razor sharp tongues, and we begin stabbing back at evil we see in the world. And it's true, this is a battle, isn't it? Our battle, we're fighting a battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, over the, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. But we got to remember that the way we fight is altogether different than the way that we would have fought before we knew Jesus. We don't badmouth those who disagree with us. We don't blast away on social media. We don't stockpile ammunition and threaten retaliation. We don't fight fire with fire or overcome evil with evil. 
the Lord of glory, could have called down fire from heaven upon his enemies, but he didn't. Because he knew that the enemy that he had come to defeat had to be dealt with a different way. Sin and death had met their match in Jesus as the sovereign king of glory. Quietly, patiently, excruciatingly, trusted the Father and laid down his life. In verse 14 of Mark chapter 9, we, need, we read of another account where the crowds began to gather. Out of the crowd, a, a man appears, and he begins telling Jesus how the disciples tried to cast a demon out of his son. The demon had crippled his son, crippled his speech, would throw him to the ground. It would try killing him. It tried drowning him in the water. It tried throwing him into the fire to be burned. This was a terrible, terrible evil, clearly. Jesus' disciples tried to cast the demon out. They couldn't. They failed. Why couldn't we cast the demon out, Jesus? That's when Jesus replies, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. My friends, the path we walk and the business that we are called to be about is not easy. Aligning ourselves with Jesus and telling the world that the only way to be saved is by trusting in him, that's going to make you the world's enemy. You're going to be out of alignment. On the wrong side of history, you are the enemy. That is why it's so important for us to remember who Jesus is. He's the Lord of glory. We need to remember that we will only be victorious when we do things in his way and by his power. And so we walk humbly. We live courageously. We follow carefully. And we overcome the forces of evil, not with weapons in our fists, but with calluses on our knees as we call upon the great and awesome, victorious Savior. Just before Jesus cast that spirit out of the son of that father, the father said to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. As disciples of Christ, as, as children of the promise, sons and daughters of the king. May our prayers be similar. I can see. Help me see more clearly. I, I trust you. Help me trust more fully. I'm relying on you. Help me to hand everything over into your capable hands. I've denied myself. Help me to let go of what I am yet struggling to let go of. I've endured some hardships. <laughs> Help me to suffer everything. Everything that comes my way as beautifully as my Savior. I'm trying to follow you. May your Holy Spirit grant that every step I take from this day forward be more in line 
with my Lord of glory. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. We have faith in you, and yet our faith is so very small, so very weak, so very fragile. But Lord, the one our faith is in is not that way at all. Thank you, Lord, for what you revealed on that hilltop to James and John and Peter and to all of us, Lord, that you are radiant, that you are powerful, that you are sovereign, that you are awesome. And Lord, may we walk through each and every day from this day forward in awe of who you are. And as we encounter the forces of evil, as we encounter resistance, as we encounter insults and opposition, Lord, may we have our eyes fixed on you, the victorious one. And Lord, would your spirit empower us to live like Jesus did. The greatest honor, Lord, is to be called your own, to be found in you. And even as Paul desired, Lord, to suffer in the way that you suffered. Because we know that to gain our lives, we lose them. We know that light momentary affliction is preparing us for a weight of glory. This is not our home. Thank you, Lord, for that. Our eyes are on you. We love you. We look forward to the day we will see you face to face. Until then, here we are. We're yours. We trust you. In Christ's holy, precious name we pray. Amen.